Welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Kara. And I'm Missy. And on this episode, we're going to discuss hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. So Missy, I think the first question would be, what are the different types of hypertensive disorders someone could have? So this is a really important topic in midwifery practice. I feel like as midwives, it's the thing that we're seeing the most in terms of complications at the end of pregnancy. So talking about how we define hypertensive disorders is really important. So there are really like five main categories of hypertensive disorders. We have people who are chronically hypertensive. We have those patients that we diagnose with gestational hypertension. We have patients who are preeclamptic or they have chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia. And then that final category is help. And so I think we'll talk a little bit about what each of those things mean throughout this um, episode. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to know how to screen for it, how to make the diagnosis, and then obviously what type of management there is for midwives. Right. So I think we'll start with the first category, which is really the chronically hypertensive patient. So when we talk about chronic hypertension, we really are talking about the person who comes into pregnancy that has already been diagnosed hypertensive. And so that means that their blood pressures are above 140 over 90 pre-pregnancy. And this is also before 20 weeks gestation. Right. Or those people even that develop hypertension during the pregnancy and then it doesn't go away by 12 weeks postpartum, we would consider them to be chronic hypertension as well. Right. And those chronically hypertensive patients may already be followed or being followed by a primary care provider who's who's treating and managing their hypertension. Absolutely. And so I think it's important to consider here as a midwife, well, what do we do with those chronic hypertensives? And depending on your practice specifically, in some practices, the midwife won't take care of that patient. They would risk out of the care. In others, they may be co-managed um, along with the physician partners, whether that's their primary care or the OBGYN. So I think before we get too far into this, we should really talk about what the management goals are for hypertension in pregnancy. So what are we trying to do and how are we trying to, um, what are we doing for the patient? And then that's really a threefold kind of thing. The first thing is, is that we're really trying to prevent maternal complications of hypertension. The second part is, is that we're trying to support the continuation of a healthy pregnancy for that particular patient. And then we also want to reduce whatever the fetal risk may be that that comes along with a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. And that can be not just the hypertension, but the medications that we may use to control hypertension and what the risks are to the fetus. Right. What, what are some of the medications that we might use? So generally, when we see patients in the intrapartum setting or late in their antepartum care, we're using something like labetalol for management of acute hypertension mm -hmm. or um, hypertension above a level that we would consider um, effective. But with chronic hypertension, there's a lot of different medications that can be used. But generally, with mild chronic hypertension, people are generally just on um, thiazide diuretics like hydrochlorothorazide, and they may come to you already on a medication like that. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've seen some methyl dopa or aldamet used over the years as well. Seems pretty safe. Um, to use in pregnancy. Absolutely. Those are definitely on that list of things that we would think about for people who have chronic hypertension or have hypertension that needs management during pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. But then there are some categories of hypertension that really are brought on by pregnancy. And the first one of those categories is the idea of gestational hypertension. And gestational hypertension is really just new onset of hypertension that comes during pregnancy after 20 weeks. And so 
these patients don't have proteinuria, they don't have some any of those severe features that we're gonna talk about later when we talk about preeclampsia. And generally with gestational hypertension, those patients will be normotensive postpartum. Right. I think, you know, historically we used to call this pregnancy-induced hypertension and it's not so much that the pregnancy is what causes it, it's just that hypertension develops during the pregnancy, and so gestational hypertension is a better term for that. And with gestational hypertension, we usually don't need pharmacologic management. Right. Generally, we treat those women with um, you know, alternative kinds of therapies, lifestyle changes, diet, salt intake, those kinds of things. And we don't really start to think about pharmacologic management until we get to a blood pressure range that's extraordinary for that particular patient. Right. And gen- with that, we oftentimes are starting to think more about preeclampsia as well. Right. And and the medication part of gestational hypertension, really, we don't start thinking about until a patient's over like 160 over 95. Right. Right. Absolutely. So we've talked some then about gestational hypertension, but what does it look like if our patient has chronic hypertension and then have superimposed preeclampsia? But maybe we should take a step back and just talk about preeclampsia first. I think it would be important to talk about preeclampsia because it's kind of that classic difference between gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. What is that thing that tells us that someone's preeclamptic and it's protein in the urine, right? Right. That's the biggest thing about that that very thin line between gestational hypertension and being preeclamptic is we're really looking for that proteinuria and what that means for the patient. So then that makes sense when we talk about chronic hypertension with superimposed, what is the difference? What is that superimposed preeclampsia? And it's that presence of protein again. Right, which is why it's important if you're thinking about uh, preeclampsia in clinical practice that you actually do that urine dip We're getting away from urine dips as a routine thing to do in antepartum visits, but it's really important as somebody starts to have an elevated blood pressure that that is a diagnostic component that becomes very important for what we call that. Exactly, exactly. And not only just elevated blood pressures, we'll talk here in a second as we talk about preeclampsia, what some of those severe features are or those warning signs. If you had a patient in your clinic that had any of those warning signs, regardless of what their blood pressure was, it'd probably be important to check that protein as well. Right, and those kinds of signs and symptoms that are associated with the hypertension are things like headache. And as a midwife, I always say, headache that you can't get rid of with Tylenol. Exactly. Do you have visual disturbances? Are you seeing spots or zigzags or stars in your visual visual field? Do you have epigastric pain? You've taken Tums and you can't get rid of what you would consider this sort of burning epigastric pain. Um, Or are you swollen above the level of your knee or above the level of your elbow? Or you have some sort of generalized edema that involves the face? So the, the things to remember are, Are you swollen? Do you have a headache you can't get rid of? Do you have epigastric epigastric pain that you can't treat with Tums? I mean, it's the things that kind of fall out of our mouths when we're trying to decide whether or not somebody's preeclampsic. Right, and you mentioned swelling. I think it's so important because I think people used to think of that as a diagnostic criteria. And swelling's not listed anymore, but you and I both know those people that you've been seeing week after week and all of a sudden there's just that drastic change. Or they mention to you all of a sudden that sudden increase or the, the edema is higher above the knee, that sort of idea. We still know how important that is as midwives, even though it may not be a diagnostic criteria. Right, right. And so when you're looking at these preeclamptic patients, we're thinking about like, well, do they have severe features? So we've talked about some of the associated signs and symptoms that people may have with preeclampsia, but we haven't really defined those severe features. And those severe features are things like 
thrombocytopenia. Is the patient's platelet count less than 100,000? Do they have a renal insufficiency? We have to remember that that renin system goes through the kidney, and so kidney function can definitely be altered. So we're looking at anybody who may have a creatinine that's over 1.1. We're also thinking about things like liver function. So ALT, AST, what are the levels of those liver enzymes that we need to be thinking about? Have they doubled? Have they tripled? Are they even higher than that? And what are we looking at in terms of liver function? And then do they have pulmonary edema or any of those visual symptoms that I mentioned before? I think the visual and the headache are really classic and we can't downplay those because they are so important um, as warning signs and severe features. And so that gets to the idea of like headaches during pregnancy and being able to really differentiate between does this patient just have a headache and maybe that's causing a transient elevation in their blood pressure or are they really having a hypertensive disorder that we need to be thinking about that's causing the headache? So which came first? Right. And it is totally classically, like you mentioned, that headache that just doesn't get better. Right. And that you just, you've tried all of the things that you can and nothing is, is making it go away. Absolutely. So when we talk about preeclampsia, we talk about preeclampsia without severe features and preeclampsia with severe and all of those things that you just mentioned about liver enzymes and platelet count and and the creatinine, and then these kind of cerebrovascular um, warning signs, those are all severe features. Right. So then if we go back to that patient who might have been a chronic hypertensive coming into pregnancy, what does that really look like then when they have this superimposed preeclampsia? So we know that they're chronically hypertensive, they have a cr chronically elevated blood pressure, and then they start to present with some of those severe features. So that's really what we're looking for. Absolutely, it's a worsening of that hypertensive disorder. And just like we would be looking for it in a normotensive patient, it's really that, that fine line can be so quick, quick of a progression in someone that already has a hypertensive disorder. So on that note, I think the last category that we should talk about is HELP syndrome. And HELP is an acronym. It stands for hemolytic anemia, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. And that can happen anytime during the antepartum period or the postpartum period. And HELP really is um, a, a bit more of an emergency in terms of hypertension and we, how we monitor it. It is, and I think the number is somewhere around about 10% of patients with preeclampsia with severe features will go on to develop help. So it's not all that common, but we certainly have to keep our eyes and ears peeled for any changes in patient condition that would tell us someone had help syndrome. And also in patients that do have help, let's say at 37 weeks, in a subsequent pregnancy, they're very likely to have help in any of their subsequent pregnancies, and it usually presents earlier um, in subsequent pregnancies. And I don't know, I. Tell me, Missy, what your experience has been. It can be a really sudden progression. Like maybe they haven't been hypertensive at all, but then they present acutely ill, and that's when we make the diagnosis. Right. I did have a patient um, in clinical practice who looked exactly like that. She had had help early, late in pregnancy with one with her first pregnancy, and then at her second pregnancy at 35 weeks, and she presented acutely ill at 28 weeks with her third baby with a just rapid onset of help and um, and you wouldn't have known that that would have been the indicator if you didn't know that her history is that she'd had two other pregnancies that had a presentation of help. Wow, wow, really impressive. The last thing that we haven't mentioned is eclampsia. 
Um, and so that obviously is a hypertensive disorder with seizures. Um, and oftentimes, you know, it's just a seizure in pregnancy that can't be attributed to any other cause. Um, and oftentimes there is elevated blood pressure with that as well. Agree. And so what are we doing for those patients who are eclamptic? Well, I mean, what's the fix for any of these hypertensive disorders? It's delivery. Right. Yeah. Right. So as we start to talk more, now that we've given you some really great definitions and diagnostic features of hypertension, I think it's important that we maybe talk about some risk factors for hypertension hypertensive disorders, as well as what labs are we looking at and how do we manage like the maternal and fetal assessment that goes along with hypertension? Yeah, let's start with risk factors. Great. So um, it's interesting to think that um, being a nullip is actually a risk factor for hypertension, but you also have to think that that body has not gone through a pregnancy um, yet, so we don't know how it will react to a pregnancy. So that kind of helps you normalize why being nulliparous would um, make you hypertensive or be a risk factor for hypertension. But also the people on the age spectrum that are on one end or the other. So this is very young patients um, or patients who present who are at advanced maternal age. I have in clinical practice seen some very young patients in uh, 16, 17 come in with um, a preeclampsia-like presentation. Um, so that's a risk factor to remember. Also multiple gestation. Like what do we do when a mom's got twins or triplets and how does that affect blood pressure? Um, some other important things are like, did you have family history of eclampsia? Um, does the patient have pre-existing chronic hypertension like we mentioned a few minutes ago? Um, and then um, is it a new partner? Because mm -hmm. a new partner is actually a huge risk factor for preeclampsia. And that's just because of maternal exposure to that partner's DNA. And there's some really good um, literature from Dr. Barton out of Lexington, who specializes in preeclampsia, about that new father, new partner, new FOB being a significant risk factor for preeclampsia. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's, you know, some other just general comorbidities, health conditions that can put someone at risk as well. And so does this individual have diabetes or insulin resistance? Um, are they obese? Um, do they have maybe a, you know, autoimmune disorder like antiphospholipid syndrome or something like that? Or even PCOS. Those are the patients that we probably worked really hard for them to be, get pregnant. And that little bit of insulin resistance that comes with PCOS then leads to hypertension in pregnancy. Right, right. And there's different theories about why all of these different things put someone at risk. You mentioned the exposure to new DNA, but there's also theories about like vascular endothelial change or um, abnormal trophoblast invasion. There's just some different genetic predispositions that are hypothesized, lots of different causes for this, but we don't truly fully understand it. We don't really know. And, but the placenta can also be a cause. And right. so when we say that delivery is the treatment for something, it's not so much the baby getting out as much as it is the placenta detaching and us being able to not have that, that circuit happening between mom and baby. Exactly. Exactly. So Kara, if you have a patient present like this in clinical practice, what kind of testing do you do? Well, oftentimes we'll think of um, some laboratory testing in addition to obviously serial blood pressures. Um, with laboratory testing, we're looking for all of those complications or severe features, some kind of that end organ damage that can happen with someone that has a hypertensive disorder. So we're thinking about, when I was talking about kidneys, we're definitely thinking about creatinine. Mm -hmm. When I was talking about liver, we're talking about liver function. AST, ALT, sometimes LDH I see thrown in there, uric acid. 
And then if we're talking about help, we obviously want a CBC so that we would know about platelets. And hemoglobin as well. You worry about them being anemic from that hemolysis. I also worry about what's happening with that baby. Yes, absolutely. And so thinking about, do we need to order NSTs? Does the patient need a biophysical profile? It may depend on your setting, but some sort of antepartum fetal surveillance is going to be really, really important. Um, in a setting where I'm at with a tertiary center, we do a lot of Doppler studies because you're also worried about a baby having growth restriction, um, some of those different complications, particularly if it's been a long-term hypertensive disorder chronic. Yeah, and I do think it's interesting that, I'm, and I'm going to plug something shamelessly here, about fetal movement and yeah. how... Um, we as providers sometimes think, well, yeah, you should know if your baby's moving. But I have seen some situations in my experience as a midwife where moms think that their babies are moving and they're not. And so I think it's really important when we are thinking about complications of pregnancy that we're reiterating some of the things that might be important in our normal antepartum care. And so fetal movement's really important when you're looking at somebody who has a hypertensive disorder. And there's a really great app called Count the Kicks. Mm -hmm. um, one of my friends who's also a labor and delivery nurse is a, um, an ambassador for Count the Kicks, but it's an app on, the, on your phone, whether it be Android or Apple, that allows you to sort of track your baby's movement and to really have a good objective way of tracking movement and being able to report that back to your provider. And even if we don't get so specific about a certain number of movements and a certain amount of time, just that woman, that patient's generalized feeling of if her baby is moving as much as it normally does right. is really, really important, right? Right. So should we maybe talk a bit about consultation and collaboration and referral? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that new midwives, um, students sometimes ask a lot about. When do, I, when do I consult? When do I need to like refer this patient out of my care? Right. And so remember that midwives are experts in normal, low-risk care. And so if that is your guiding principle, then if we get to a place where we have to use um, mag sulfate for a patient, then are we considering collaboration with our um, consulting physician? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, oftentimes you could very easily consult if it was, let's say, gestational hypertension, you don't have any proteinuria, you've checked your labs and they all look normal. You're going to watch this patient really closely, but maybe consultation would be appropriate. But I absolutely agree. Once you get to that preeclampsia diagnosis, you are thinking oftentimes about collaboration. So I brought up MAG, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about why MAG. Like, what's the mechanism of action, and why do we use that? Yeah, magnesium sulfate is really interesting because we really only use it for two indications now. It is for the prevention of seizures in a preeclamptic patient, that prevention of the um, cerebrovascular damage that can happen, um, preventing stroke and so forth, and then also for neuroprotection in our early gestations. Sometimes with a preeclamptic, it's both of those things together, right? Right. And the idea, I just remember this so clearly when I was in midwifery school, that um, when you're talking about seizures and they say, why, why do you use magnesium? They say, it is not to lower their blood pressure. Absolutely. It's to lower their seizure threshold. Yes. So if you need to also lower their blood pressure, then IV labetalol is the way to go in terms of blood pressure lowering. But the magnesium sulfate is simply for uh, seizure threshold. Absolutely. And I agree with you about the labetalol. We still sometimes use hydralazine when you're really wanting to lower a blood pressure quickly. 
um, because they're in the severe range. Um, but you're right about magnesium. Sometimes you'll see a lowering of the blood pressure on someone that's on mag because they're at bed rest. They're not able to get up and be mobile and have as much stimulation. Yeah, so it's basically you're not doing a lot of activities. So your blood pressure has as normal as normalized because right. of that. Right, right. The goal of magnesium is not to lower the blood pressure. Right. Is there anything else you think about hypertensive disorders that it's important for our listeners to hear? I think the other thing is that it's important to understand how diagnosing gestational hypertensive disorders is different than diagnosing hypertension in a primary care non-pregnant patient. And so, you know, we talk about when we look at gestational hypertension, we talk about having two blood pressures greater than 140 over 90 four hours apart. Right. Right. And so then oftentimes people want to transfer that to, that's how I can make the diagnosis of hypertension in my 40 year old patient that's not pregnant in the office. And that's not the same diagnostic criteria. So I think what you're getting to is that we use criteria like JNC8 or the AHA blood pressure guidelines, which means you have to have two readings that indicate hypertension two weeks apart um, in order to diagnose somebody with chronic hypertension in primary care. Right. And that's if we go, you know, if we use JNC8, it's 140 over 90, right? But then we have newer guidelines that came out in 2017 that are from the ACC AHA that would actually use 130 over 80. But I think that important part is that there are two readings on two separate visits taken with the appropriate size cuff with the patient in a seated position to really get that diagnosis in primary care. Right. So it's important not to blur those lines and to understand that it, the diagnosis of chronic hypertension and the diagnosis of hypertension or pregnancy look different. Yeah. Well, this was a great talk, Missy. I feel like I have even a better understanding of the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy just after talking with you. Is there anything else that you think we've missed? Well, for students that are listening, I think it's important if hypertension is a problem area for you to, you know, make that table. Uh, write out what the five criteria are that we talked about, and that those being at, in review, chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, super, gestational hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia, preeclampsia and eclampsia, and then understand what each one of those diagnostic criteria are, how you may treat them, what the management plan is, and how we assess mom and baby. So those are just some ways for you maybe to understand, to get that clear what those criteria are in your head. But it's also so important in clinical practice that you continue to be updated on the guidelines that go along with hypertension, hypertensive management. Right, absolutely. And I think, you know, as we talk about what those guidelines are. Oftentimes we're looking to ACOG. We're looking to the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine with some of those recommendations. Right, exactly. So. All right. Well, this was a great review of um, gestational hypertensive disorders, and we hope that you have found this really helpful. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.